Hello. We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christlikeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. We continue on in our study of the Sermon on the Mount together. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 13 this morning. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, to the disciples that have gathered here to hear him, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Let's pray together. God, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would illuminate the text to us, that we might hear, that we might understand, and Lord, that our lives might be changed as a result of encountering you in your word today. We pray this in the strong name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, last week we began our study of the Sermon on the Mount as we went through these characteristic qualities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We looked at the Beatitudes and what it means to uh, be happy, not in circumstances, not in people necessarily, but happy in the Lord, what it means to be blessed in the Lord. Now, when we look at this next verse, and we're just focusing in on this one verse this morning, verse 13, um, it would be very easy for us as Christians you know, we've gone through the Beatitudes and how we're supposed to exude these kinds of characteristic qualities. Now, maybe it would be easier for us to just separate ourselves from the rest of the world, right? I mean, that's what people have done throughout Christian history. So if we're going to be distinct from the world, it's just easier not to talk to them anymore. It's easier just not to hang out with them anymore. It's easier to be our own people than to do our own thing. It'd be very easy to separate ourselves from the world and then devote our time then to personal holiness or whatever you want to do. The greatest challenge of being a Christian today is being in the world and yet not being of the world. That's kind of Christianese. It kind of makes sense to us sometimes. But our tendency is that we, we separate because we want to separate, them things, separate from things that make us uncomfortable. Now, don't you do that in your everyday life? If there are things that people are doing things that people are saying, things that people are watching, and you naturally don't want to be a part of those things, what do you do? Well, you separate yourself. You go the opposite direction. There's someone that you don't necessarily like talking to. You see them coming. What do you do? You kind of avert your eyes. Maybe you kind of step to the side. Maybe you take a quick hallway, whatever it might be. But we separate ourselves naturally from the things that we feel most uncomfortable. And too often, I think that we... We, we approach life with this as, as Christians. We approach this, this life of, of being a follower of Jesus and these words of, we ought to do this. We ought to do that. So we see a lot of the things that we ought to be doing. And those things are very clear to us. And yet, what happens most of the time is we don't actually do them. So instead of having this mentality of, we ought to do this, 
Perhaps we should have the mentality of we are doing this. That may not always be the thing that you think you should be doing or doing it the best way that you can, but we are doing something. We are approaching life with, with more than just kind of an idea or a concept of what we want it to look like. So we look at this idea of being salt this morning. I want us to examine how Christ expects us as followers, as disciples, to function in this world. So we as disciples of Jesus Christ should preserve, we should have the, a purifying kind of effect upon the world by the way that we live, by the kind of hope that we bring to people as we explain, as we tell about this saving relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to do, I'm going to kind of give you a roadmap of what we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to examine our present situation, our current condition, where we find ourselves in the world in relationship to this idea of being salt. And then we have to think about why does Jesus, why does he choose this metaphor? And maybe it's not the first one that you would think of when you begin to think about how you want to describe Christianity or describe followers of Jesus. Why does he pick salt? I think we'll find some important things for us there. And then also, how, how are we to act as a result of being salt in the world? So let's look at the first of these together. Our present situation, our present situation. There's a, a great deal of misunderstanding today about the true function and the responsibility of Christian believers. And so when we look at what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he is giving just an incredible groundwork for what, what Christian people are supposed to be like, how we're supposed to function and live in this new kind of Christ-centered community. But then there's still confusion about what is that supposed to look like? How are we supposed to do this? And we have, we have all kinds of different theology. We have all kinds of different orthopraxies, practical ways of doing theology or living your life. And some of it says that theology is not that important. The doctrine is not that important. Some of it says that it's actually more about the social change that you can, you can create. It's about helping the poor. It's about, it's about helping the orphan or the widow. It's about doing these things, food pantries, clothing shelters, whatever it might be. So you have to figure out what is, what is the real function of Christian believers in our society. Um, one commentator said this, I think he's right, he says, those who are my disciples, he's referring to Jesus, those who are Jesus' disciples should affect the world positively by the way in which they live. Now, you can take that in several different directions, maybe some of it badly, but um, but then we, we, have to, we have to know that as we look at the text, we look at even the Beatitudes, we ought to be affecting the people around us in positive ways. So if you're kind of a negative person or that's your tendency, well, that's my tendency, for those of you who know me well, I have, I, have a, I have a tendency to be more of a negative kind of person. So that's a struggle for me. So I'm just kind of laying my heart out there for you guys. I have a tendency to be negative, so I have to be focused when I think about my discipleship, when I think about my relationship with Christ, my relationship with you as, as Christian fellowship here at this church, as, uh, as family members, I have to remember that I ought to be affecting positive change in the lives of those around me, not negative change, which is sometimes easier because it comes from our, our broken nature. So, now, when we think about our society as a whole, we think of our society as a whole, 
in the close of the 19th century, there was, there was a great sense of optimism. Now, it was optimism concerning uh, humanity, because we believed that human, human beings, we were going to create this one great new society that, that everything was kind of amped up and going in the right direction. Civilization was changing. Uh, people were reading. People were knowledgeable. People were thinking. Um, and so we thought that, that the more that people knew, the more that people understood how the world works with philosophy and aesthetics and you, you, you name it, everything coming out of the Enlightenment, we, we realized that this utopian idea of a society that was peaceful and harmonious, really we thought it could be achieved. We, they believed that, that human beings could make for themselves a world that was better than the world that they'd received. It was better than the one that they'd received from the, the generations past, and much of it had to do with deleting God from the equation. This is what we call humanism. Coming out of the Enlightenment, humanism focused upon humanity, focused upon the human person as being the, the one thing that was most powerful basically in the cosmos and could affect real change. So if you got yourself under control and if human beings began to care about one another, then you didn't need a God anymore. All you needed was human beings to affect real and lasting change in the world. They believe that humanity was headed toward this golden age, a golden age that would be of peace and harmonious. And they could do it all just by sheer willpower, doing the things that they wanted to do. Now, we stand this side of history. We look back at those days and we think, wow, there seems to be a, a, a glaring problem in the middle of that, doesn't there? And you think back, what happened in the early part of the 20th century? When you have two incredibly large wars, huge worlds, world wars. In fact, World War I and World War II, we have this huge glaring hole in the whole situation. If they were headed for a utopian environment. How in the world could two devastating world wars happen? I mean, maybe things weren't looking as good as they thought they were. Let me think back. Now, human optimism is not quite as popular as it used to be. Because in our decision to neglect God, to kind of delete Him from the equation of life, we discovered that there really is no other foundation for hope. If there is no divine, if there is no sovereign God, then there really is no hope for future, for a lasting future. There was one philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher. And he was the first one to proclaim that God was dead. Now, he wasn't suggesting that God was somehow real and had died. But Nietzsche was saying that, that the idea of a God, the concept of a divine sovereign, is no longer needed in our society anymore because we have now arrived with a, more, uh, a better understanding about human beings and life in general. And so God is dead. Now, the problem is, if God is dead, then everything that God that God symbolizes, that God brings about all of the promises, all of the good, all of the, the meaning, all of that is dead as well. And as a result, you lose everything. These words came from Nietzsche when he was close to the end of his life. And you can just hear the, the terrible depression of what he says. He says, oh man, take heed of what the dark midnight says. The world is deep and more profound than day would have thought. Profound inner pain, pleasure more profound than pain of heart. 
Woe speaks to passion, but all pleasures seek eternity, a deep and profound eternity. And he didn't believe in an eternity. You can imagine that the, just the, the incredible depression that would set on. The world is deep and more profound than they would have thought. Profound is the pain, all of the suffering, all of the trial. We don't have any way of making any sense of it. And we don't have any way of thinking that there's more that can be had. There is good that can be had. Because all of pleasure can only, it's, it's wisping away right here in this temporal reality. It's all in eternity. But the reality is I don't believe in an eternity. So I'll never achieve it. Nietzsche followed that philosophy to its logical end. He, he knew full well the, the tension and the despair of modern man. Without a personal God, there is no hope. And everything truly is dead. Now, we look at the way we understand this world. We want to be affecting change in the world for Christ. That is what we've been called upon by the Lord Jesus Christ to do. And the problem is we're fighting against this old nature that is within us. Fighting against this old man. Now, if you've ever been down to my office, in fact... I hate to admit this, even as I was thinking about this this morning. If you go down into my office this morning, and not actually in my office, because I sometimes push my garbage outside my office. But um, go down, there, there's a table down there with, uh, with some things, and, and Rubens, because he's a gracious brother, this morning threw away a couple of things that needed to be thrown away. But you'll, you'll find there are coffee cups. Now, Kim and I, for years, have been have been buying coffee cups. We love coffee cups you know, from different places that we've been. One of my favorites is our first anniversary we spent at a bed and breakfast and they had these really cool coffee mugs. And so I bought one. It still sits there in our, in our uh, cabinet. So we, we love coffee cups. I love the way that they look. I love the way that they feel in the hand. I love the things that they contain. You know, so I really enjoy coffee cups. And uh, the problem oftentimes in my own life is I'll have some really nice array of coffee cups in my office. But then as you approach them, you'll notice that there are varying degrees of life within the coffee cups. And um, it's not very nice, to be quite honest. I've been told it's quite gross. So I try to clean them out, and, and it just it happens to me invariably. Ruth, our secretary, makes fun of me because of it, but there's always a coffee mug that needs to be cleansed. But the, the, here's the point, here's the point. The coffee mug itself looks really nice on the outside. I mean, it's a pleasing looking cup. Nice colors, nice shape, you know. But what's on the inside, that's the problem. And so very often, that's our problem as well. We're very much like coffee cups, aren't we? At first glance, we look really clean and we look really nice. I mean, we come here on a Sunday morning, we're all dressed up, ready for church. We're doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing. We're saying the right kinds of things. We're doing the right kinds of things. But then the heart, when we're, I think it was Adrian Rogers said that, you know, if we're all kind of like cups, when, uh, when we get bumped in life, and we'll know what's on the inside because of what sloshes out. So when you go through the trial, when you go through the, the time of suffering, when you get bumped in life, whatever is coming out of the cup, that, my friends, that's really what's on the inside of the cup. Now, we're all familiar with the feelings of guilt, feelings of, of wrong. 
Because there's something beyond us, and we find it in the Word of God, is that standard of holiness, of good behavior, of what we're supposed to look like. And this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us. Now, we can't, we can't actually attain perfection in this life, but we will in the life to come. But we're always constantly yearning for, constantly pleading with the Lord to make us more like Jesus Christ. We're before Christ, we're basically like corpses in varying degrees of decomposition. Some are more decomposed than others, and their works show that. But the reality is, Paul says, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We're not living spiritually. And so what happens at conversion is our cup, our life, really needs to be done away with. And I've said this before, and I'm not going to rehash it, but Jesus really isn't that interested in getting your life. We have this weird understanding where we, we, uh, we invite Jesus to come into our life or invite Jesus to come into our heart. Jesus really isn't all that interested in coming into your life. I mean, your life is a wreck. It's a dirty coffee cup. Jesus is more interested in you throwing that coffee cup in the garbage and giving you a new cup, and that's his life. He's inviting us into his life, to live in his life. It's only in living in Jesus' life that we receive the promises of Jesus' life. And that's the benefit and that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what do we find when we look at ourselves? Do we find a vibrant believer in Jesus Christ who's actively seeking to preserve those around him? Or do we find a person who's very interested in living for themselves. Jesus prayed this in John chapter 17. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So our purpose in this world is not that we separate ourselves from the unbelievers, but that we affect change. That we become agents of change within the world. We're to bring people to a point where they must be confronted with this transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. But then why do we fail to bring about real spiritual change around us? Well, a couple of things. One is we believe that words are more powerful than actions oftentimes. So we say certain things that sound really good, sound even, you know, quotable or tweetable or whatever you want to call it. We say things that sound really good. We post them on Facebook. But then in reality, our, our actions, our life, doesn't measure up with the kind of speech that we've given. Secondly, we're worried about the opinions of other people. We're worried about what other people might think of us if we actually were living a life that was different than those around us. And then also we have a tendency to separate ourselves from those whom we disagree. We don't want to be around people that, that try to call us on the carpet. We don't want to be around people that are, are going to try and debate us. We don't want to be around people that are, are, are going to disagree with what we think about life, about God. We want to be around people that think just like us. And friends, that typically, that really is the biggest problem with evangelism in the church. Because so many times what we do is we insulate ourselves in such a way that we actually have to go out and find a lost person. 
That's the hardest thing for pastors. I mean, we're supposed to be leading the, leading the way in evangelism. You know, the hardest thing for me, honestly, is to find a lost person to talk to. Because I, I have isolation issues. And not, it doesn't come because I don't like people. It's just because of, of the kind of job. My focus is upon the congregation. My focus is upon equipping the saints. My focus is on teaching in various locations, whether it's here or at Boyce or where it might be. So I'm around people that are believers so much that it has to be very intentional for me to reach out and talk to someone. That's why I go to certain gas stations over and over again. And friends, if, if it's true of me, I know it's got to be true of you as well. Our closest friends oftentimes are people that think just like us. So we have to be willing to stretch ourselves to meet people, to relate to people that we work with, that we're around, that maybe we're not comfortable with. We have to stretch ourselves, get outside of our comfort zone to talk to them about Jesus Christ so that we can actually be agents of change. So why, we looked at the situation, why does Jesus then use this idea of salt? What does he mean by this? He says to them, you, and he's being emphatic, he's saying, you yourselves are the salt. You're the salt. Why does he call them salt? Well, let's look together at what Jesus may have meant by this statement. Salt, in the ancient times, was of great value. It was very, very important. It was one of the most common of all preservatives because they didn't have refrigerators back then. They didn't have ice boxes. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. The land of Israel was an arid climate, and so salt was used to prevent the rotting and the decaying of meat after it had been butchered. So if they wanted to eat it, if they wanted to keep it, they had to salt it. Salt was able to keep the process of putrefaction at bay. So when Jesus said that those who are following after him are to be salt, He's saying something really specific when he uses that phrase. He's also teaching that the, the, the world, apart from God, is rotten because of sin. Sin has caused a rotting effect, a destructive effect. But, but here, through, through his crossword, through the gospel, through his people, through his disciples, he, he, he is giving the world salt to be rubbed into the meat, to be, to be one that, that keeps it preserved, that sees change take place around the people in your lives. Now, there's two errors that we have to address before we move forward. The first one is the world, this is, this is what some might suggest, the world is basically good and will continue to get better and better and even become perfect through Christian social action. This is what we've called in theological studies post-millennialism. We believe that uh, everything, as, as human beings become more and more uh, equipped with Christian moral values and so on and so forth, that eventually everything is going to get to a place where it's so good Jesus comes back. Now, if, if anything proved that wrong, it was World War I and World War II. Just kind of shot that one right in the foot. And that theology really isn't that popular anymore. But that's, that's a false idea. Another one is that the world is rotten, so rotten that Christians should disassociate themselves from the world as much as possible. And so we have, as a result, different kinds of theologies and life, uh, communities of life, uh, like the, uh, well, the Amish, for instance, or something like that, where you completely separate yourselves from all of the rest of social life 
and then you try to live out your, your worldview there. Now, those two things are not that helpful. In order for us to be salt, in order for salt itself to, to fulfill its intended purpose, it has to be taken out and used, right? How effective is it when you uh, put salt on the table if you just let it sit there in the center of the table and don't actually put it on your food? Do you taste the salt? No. I mean, that's stupid, right? Of course you don't taste the salt. Why? Because it's still in the shaker. It's not on your food. That's the reason you can't taste it. It seems obvious, but when it comes to our lives, if we're not willing to be shaken for Jesus, it sounds like we're going charismatic now, doesn't it? If we're not willing to be shaken for Christ, like a salt shaker, then that which is in our life is never going to get on the outside to the people around us. And sometimes the shaking takes place in the trial. Remember like the, the sloshing effect? Whatever's on the inside gets to the outside if you're sloshed a bit. Well, not drunk, but sloshed in trial, whatever. <laughs> what I'm saying is, when you come to those moments in your life where you have an encounter, where there's a confrontation, people are upset, the way that you respond to trial is going to show that agent of change. It's going to show a gospel, going to show a life affected by the gospel. We have to be willing to be shaken for the sake of Christ and for those around us. Now, Kim and I, we, we love eating all kinds of different types of food. We, uh, it's one of the things we enjoy. If we go out on a date, we like to pick a new spot, pick a place that we haven't been before. And lots of times, really, ethnic foods. One of our favorite kinds of ethnic foods is Indian food. And we've gone down to Shalimar's many times, or in fact, we've, we've ordered in, you know, because we love it so much, right? And... One of the unique things about Indian food, if you've not ever eaten it before, is they, they love using curry. Absolutely love using curry. And the one thing you know about curry is that if somebody's eaten curry in the last, I don't know, day, you'll know because they smell like curry. You know, one time we, we ate some Indian food, went over to a friend's house, and as we walked in, they were like, whoo, you guys smell like you've been eating Indian food. And sure enough, we had early on in the day. But it just kind of, it, it permeates the room when you're, when you, after you've eaten it. It just kind of eats out of your pores. It's, it's really good, and you can't smell it anymore, but it's not so good, I guess, for the people around you. But, nevertheless, imagine that if you, because you are, you are taking in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are reading the scriptures, you are being changed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, imagine if when you walk in a room, Jesus just kind of ate out of your pores. And you walked in the room, people were just like, wow, you smell like Jesus. You smell like a Galilean, heaven's sake, right? You smell like Jesus. This is what they said about the disciples. He said, they said, these men have obviously been with Jesus because of the things that they said, because of the way they said it, because of the way that they acted. Their, their actions were, were showing that they had lived and been with Jesus. Friends, that ought to be the same way for you and me. So when you think about the things that you say on a regular base, basis, what comes out of your mouth? Does it make people think of Jesus? The things that you do with your time, with your life, with your talents, with your finances, do, do, do those things showcase the fact that you love Jesus, that you're being transformed by Jesus? Do your behaviors cause people to ask you why 
You're joyful. Why are you different? Why are you trying to affect positive change in the lives of those around you? Why aren't you negative like everybody else at work? Why are you happy? What, what's, what's, what's going on with you? Well, the Apostle Paul says, he says, thanks be to God whom Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads, listen, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Listen to this. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to another a fragrance from life to life. So really, you ought to smell like Jesus because you're supposed to be the aroma of Christ. So when people are around you, they ought to know. And it doesn't just happen by osmosis. Even though we're a fragrance, they don't smell you with their nostrils. They need to hear you with their ears. The things that you say, they need to watch you with their eyeballs. The things that you do, do you, are you Jesus to them? That's the question. So, that's what we're called to be, these agents of change, because we're salt. How can we be salty people? How can we be salty people? Well, there's two ways that we can be salt in the world. The first one is this. We're to be sources of true flavor. True flavor. Now, being married to Kimberly for the last 15 years has taught me many different things. Things like, really important things. Things like you don't squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. That's an important one to remember. Now, eventually that one just got thrown out because now she just uses her own toothpaste. So, another one, a clean car is a happy car. So you ought to have a clean car. Another one, picking up the house is not the same thing as cleaning the house. And for me, I didn't know that there was a difference and struggled with that one for many years. Buckle up for safety, always buckle up. There's a song that goes with that one. And then the last one is never put salt on your food before you taste it. And apparently this is a big deal to cooks. I am not a cook, and so, not a crook, I am not a cook, and so uh, it doesn't really make any sense to me. Now according to standards of etiquette, you, you should always taste your food before you put additional spices on the food. Because if you put additional spices on the food before you've tasted it, then you look really rude to the cook. Now, this is one of the most difficult things for me to have learned in the last 15 years, I know. In my family, putting additional salt and pepper on the food is basically like taking your napkin and putting it in your lap. That's just what you did. You just whoop, and then the salt, and then the pepper. Now we're ready to eat. And the blessing, of course, right? So you did all of those things. That was just natural. You just, it was a routine that and I never thought about how someone who had fixed the food would think after they'd labored for so long to put these things together and put this plate in front of me and for me to say, well, what you've done is nice, but it's just not quite good enough. I'm going to put my own salt on. I, I, I see now how, how that could be seen. But for me, salt always has this thing, right? I mean, and now it's moved to not just normal salt, but like sea salt. You know, the good stuff in the grinder. But it always provides this nice flavor. It just, it just makes everything taste better. Mashed potatoes taste better. Green beans taste better. Really anything besides ice cream tastes better with a little bit of salt on it. That's how we're supposed to be in all of our relationships. 
We're out to be that, that flavor, that special kind of flavor. People that are around us, they, they ought to be able to see someone who, who is different. Not because we innately are different from them, but because of Christ. It's because of Christ that we are happier. Because our happiness is not rooted in circumstances. It's not rooted in possessions. It's not rooted in relationships that are temporal. But our happiness is rooted in Christ. In the kingdom of God, we're seeking after His kingdom and His righteousness. And as a result, all of these other things are being added to us. And so we find fulfillment in that. The people around us are, are looking for this purpose, looking for this happiness in relationships, in communities, in status, in entertainment, whether it's movies or music, or maybe they're looking in other places like drugs and alcohol, whatever it might be. As Christians... We have to be joyful. That's who we are. We're joyful people because of what Christ has done. So we ought to flavor the conversation. Not with negativity, but with positivity that focuses upon Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times it's the other way around for us. Um, the author, Robert Louis Stevenson, once wrote in his diary, as though it was an exceptional fact, he said, I have been to church today and I am not depressed. <laughs> That's quite something to say on a Sunday afternoon, right? But how often times do we feel that way? Oh my goodness, if I have to hear one more thing that this person says in Sunday school, they're sucking the life out of me, or whatever. So many times it looks like we've been baptized, not in holy water, but rather in like holy lemon juice. We're just sad-faced people, always walking about saying, woe is me, like we're Eeyore or something. That is not the way that Christians are supposed to behave. We are not to be sad and depressed. Now, there's occasions for mourning, there's occasions for sadness, but as we reflect upon the truth of the gospel, we ought to be joyful kinds of people. Because our happiness and our joy is not found in the things that we can see and touch, but found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so we're to be that flavor, but then also we're to be a catalyst for thirst. Salt provides flavor, but it also causes you to be thirsty. So the question is, do you make people thirsty for Jesus? When people are around you, do they want to know Jesus more? Or do they want to know Jesus less? Or are they just indifferent to the whole thing? How is your relationship with every person in your life, how is that relationship causing them to be more thirsty, more desirous for a relationship with Jesus Christ? When you enter a room, you show evidence of joy in your heart. Satisfaction in Christ. When people are around you for a great deal of time, do they say, wow, man, I really want what they've got. I'd really like to know God the way that they know God. In ancient times, in ancient Israel, they would have various feasts. One of these feasts was the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest, he would take large jugs of water and they would pour it from the altar. And it would run down the steps on, the, on a particular side of the temple. And on this Last day, when they actually did this, after it was finished, it says in the text in John chapter 7 that Jesus stood up and he began to teach them. And he said this, he said, if anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, we're to be the salt that causes people to become thirsty for Jesus. Jesus is the one who is living water. He is the one that will provide true sustenance and hope for all those who will trust in him. So, questions that you have to ask yourself this morning are, are you preserving those around you because you are salt? Because of the way that you love them, because of the way that you tell them about Jesus, because of the way that you behave? Do your, your actions, do they demonstrate that Jesus Christ is very dear to you? So will you be salt in a world that is in great need of healing, in great need of purification, in great need of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the calling that you've placed upon our lives to be salt, to be agents of change. And God, we ask that you would give us wisdom as we think about our own lives, that you would help us through your spirit have clarity about the way that we act, the way that we say things. Lord, are we truly affecting positive gospel change in the lives of those around us? God, help us to look at ourselves closely and through your spirit, I pray that you would change us so that we might not be the kind of salt that has lost its taste and is only good for being trampled upon by men, but that we would be salt that brings about preservation, healing in this life and for those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name.